In 2005, many of you know this, my son Ben and I had the wonderful privilege and blessing of going to the Holy Land, going on a tour to Israel, a trip to Israel, the land where Jesus walked. What a wonderful thing. Somebody asked me just this last week and said, do you think I ought to go to, to Israel? And I said, of course, <laughs> of course. Go when you have the chance, when you have, have the opportunity. And when I returned home, one of the questions that I was most often asked was something like this. When you went to Israel, was there anything that surprised you? Was there anything that you didn't expect or that wasn't like you imagined it would be? And the answer came quite simply and easily. I responded, I expected that the messianic expectation would be high. That is, the people of Israel, even today, are anxiously awaiting their long-anticipated Messiah. But I said, I didn't think it would be so much of a part of every aspect of the state and the culture of Israel. I fully expected to see the messianic expectation of what they call the Temple Institute. What a great place to visit. They have reproduced all the candlesticks, all the vessels, all the garments, everything to be used in the worship and the sacrifice in the temple, which they hope will soon be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Each vessel has been created by accomplished craftsmen, and these vessels and the priestly garments are being fashioned today according to the exact biblical requirements. And they wait the day, soon they hope, when they will be called into divine service of the holy temple of God. And when we're looking at some of these golden vessels and, you, and the things used in the, the temple ceremonies, my son Ben asked a question that I think was on everybody's mind, but he was brave enough to ask it. And he said, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? And they quickly answered, Messiah will reveal it when he comes. So they're expecting the Messiah. They're looking forward to the coming of a priestly Messiah who will restore the worship and sacrificial system of their covenant with God. Now there's also those who await the kingly Messiah who's going to restore Israel to the greatness and to the power of King David and Solomon. They see God's promises as yet unfulfilled in that. And this kingly Messiah is going to come and protect Israel from its many enemies. And Israel will dominate the region, if not the whole world. But when it comes to the nation of Israel, the state of Israel, that was established in 1948, the messianic expectation takes a little bit of a different twist, but it's no less pronounced. And I like the way that John MacArthur explains it. Uh, based on a book he read. He was given a book when he was in Israel by one of their tour guides. And he points out from this book that some in Israel believe and affirm that the only Messiah that ever will come is the state of Israel itself. The state of Israel itself is, is the Messiah. And much of the population of Israel is very secular, big portion of it secular, and the state and the government of Israel is completely secular, just like the United States. And many believe and affirm that the state of Israel is, in fact, the Messiah. And so the view of many is that, that, that Christians have their Messiah. We have our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that, that's fine for us as Christians. And if we want to believe that's the plan of God and that's the way God intended it, that's, that's all right. But they say, don't try to push your view onto the Jew. Don't send any missionaries. 
Don't try to give the gospel of the new covenant. They understand that their Messiah, who their Messiah is, and their Messiah is none other than the nation itself. And they draw very interesting parallels. They have, they have biblical references for this. First of all, the Messiah was born of sovereignty by God, by God's promise. God promised the Messiah. And as Christians, we say that's Jesus Christ. They believe that's really the nation of Israel. The Messiah was protected in Egypt. Remember that? Uh, the Christ child was taken into Egypt to escape Herod, and that was according to the promises of God. The secularists say that really Israel it was taken into Egypt in captivity to preserve it as a nation. Remember that with Joseph? And uh, so he went there, and during the famine and the other difficult times, so they say that was fulfilled in, in Joseph. The Messiah, we are told in Scripture, is despised and hated and rejected. We think that's Christ, but they say that's the nation of Israel who is despised and hated and rejected. The Messiah was killed by the Romans. We say that's Jesus. They say that's the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. The Messiah will rise again on the third day. We say that's Jesus Christ. They say that's the nation Israel after 2,000 years of captivity. A day is like 1,000 years. 2,000 years of captivity, 2,000 years of trial, 2,000 years of non-existence as a nation. It's now the third millennium. They say it's the third day, and the nation is going to rise to the fullness of a power in the world. So according to the prevalent view, it's the state of Israel that will prevent another holocaust. It's the state of Israel and their military might and their political alliances, primarily and almost only with the United States, that will define them, defend them from their many adversaries. Many of them see their nation or their Messiah as the nation of Israel, and so they still reject Jesus Christ and what he did on this earth. Now, this kind of thinking that many of the promises and promises, promises and prophecies pertaining to Israel in the Old Testament and not that they pertain to Israel rather than to the Messiah. It's not new for the Jews. In fact, I think of Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to go back to Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 3, 53, verses 3 and 4 in particular, this is the prophecy concerning the suffering servant. Page 905 in the smaller Bibles, page 1022 in the larger one. Isaiah chapter 53 is, is that wonderful prophecy of the, the suffering servant. And verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteem them stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then if you go on, it says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Who is Messiah talking about? We, we understand this rightly. This, this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. But the Jews cannot accept a suffering, dying Messiah. And literally for thousands of years, even in Jesus' day, 
The Jews have said that Israel is the suffering servant who is here in Isaiah. It's a prophecy about the suffering the Jews have endured for millennia. They have applied it to Israel, just like many say that the state of Israel is the Messiah. And so the Jews today are struggling with and struggle with the same kind of questions that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9. How can the gospel, how can faith in Jesus Christ really be God's message if the Jews never believed it and still, for the most part, still don't believe it? If the Jews are God's people, why would God give a message that they would reject? Now, if the leading Jews of the time of Christ didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and if, for the most part, the Jewish people today don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if Jews dominantly throughout all history don't believe he's the Messiah, and if Jews today don't believe he's the Messiah, and the Jews are the chosen people of God who have the revelation of God, then wouldn't the correct conclusion be that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah? And if you're struggling with this right now, good, because Paul is going to address that. And here's the main question that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. If the Jews have rejected and crucified Jesus, the Son of God, does that mean that God's promises were frustrated and his plan defeated? In other words, has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? So look at verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, the sixth verse of the ninth chapter. Paul writes and says very clearly, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here God's word refers to all of God's promises to Israel. Have all of God's promises, have the promises to Israel have failed? In the New Testament, God's word, the phrase, the word of God, mostly refers to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's word. But here it's referring to what God promised Israel. In the fourth chapter of Romans, verse 16, you don't need to turn to it, Paul says that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed of Abraham. The promises of God, God's word will be guaranteed to all the seed of Abraham, all the descendants of Abraham. God's word, the promise, it says, to those who are of the law and to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It sounds all-encompassing there, doesn't it? Children by birth, the Jews. Children by faith, the Christians. All guaranteed right. So what happened? Has God's word failed? And Paul's answer is emphatic in verse 6. In fact, Young's literal translation puts it this way. And it is not possible, not possible that the word of God hath failed. Clearly not possible. Why not? Paul says in verse 6 again, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They're not all Israel from Israel, literally. Because those to whom the word was directed were not physical Israel, they were not national Israel. Paul begins by demolishing the idea 
that the whole Jewish nation would be saved. That just because you were born a Jew, you would be saved. That just, just because you were born physically or you're born into national Israel, that you were guaranteed to be a recipient of God's promise. That was the view held in Paul's day, and that is the view held by many today. The Jews had a saying, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. And the error is in holding the, the promise of God that it does not fail and in applying that to the whole of physical Israel. That if you're a physical descendant of Abraham, then you're automatically in. You are a child of the promise. In contrast, the Puritan John Flavel said it this way, If Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs in your veins. Paul is going to show that a physical descent from Abraham is what matters. Then the Ishmaelites and the Edomites were in the same position as Israel. The Ishmaelites and the Edomites were also physical descendants of Abraham. They were sons of Abraham in the flesh. And if you want to put that in terms of people, then the sons of Ishmael today are who? The Arabs, who are Muslim, who are also, are they also sons of Abraham? Would they be recipients of the, the promise because they're sons of Abraham? And if you consider the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, the word Edom means red. It's kind of an idea. Remember the red stew that uh, Jacob gave to the red sun? And so three different words are used for red there. One of them is Adam, which means red. And so the descendants of Esau became the Edomites. And one particular Edomite is well known to us. Does this mean that King Herod, who was an Edomite, was a recipient of the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Has God's word failed then? No, because Israel is not and never was ethnic, physical Israel to begin with. That is, just because they are Jews, they are recipients of God's promise. Whatever might happen to ethnic Israel, or we'd say to the nation of Israel, the promise to true Israel still stands, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The falling away of those who are not true Israel, in other words, really has no bearing on whether God keeps his promise because his promise was never given to those who fall away to begin with. When we think of Israel, we think of a nation. We think of a race, and we still think that way today. We think of a geographical location where people of a particular race are born and where they live and where they come from. But Israel is not a term like Babylon, Egypt, Persia, Greece, or Rome. And it cannot be defined in terms of physical descent or understood in simply human terms. And so Paul gives us two examples to show who Israel truly is. That there is a true Israel within ethnic Israel. The first example is Isaac, and the second is, is Jacob. Both descended from Abraham, but they were not Abraham's only physical descendants. descendants. And, and Paul is going to show us in Romans chapter 9, verse 7, that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, as it were. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 9, he says, 
nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, or literally Abraham's seed. You're not a child of Israel just because Abraham is your physical father, but it says, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Isn't that popular today? You hear people say, we're all God's children. God only has only one kind of child, and that's the child who is in Jesus Christ and saved. We're not all God's children. Everybody's an offspring of God. Paul said that in, in, uh, in the book, book of Acts. But not everybody's a child of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as, as the seed or, or the descendants. And so notice how Paul distinguishes between children and descendants. Not all descendants are children. Who are the recipients of the promise? They're the children of Abraham, and not all descendants are recipients of the promise. That is, not all Abraham's physical descendants are his spiritual children. And so the failure of the Jews, for the most part, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ does not mean that God's word has, has failed. Now, there is coming a time because God has only set them aside temporarily, hasn't he? Because in the tribulation period, there's going to be a time when God, all Israel, will, will be saved. When Through the 144,000 evangelists, we call them 12,000 from each of the tribes of, of Israel. They are the first fruit, meaning the full harvest will come. And I believe that everybody who is a Jew during the tribulation period is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and become one of his, his children. But God's word has not failed because he has temporarily set them aside because he has been true to his word, he has been true to his promises to all those who are truly Israel, recipients of the promise. All Israel is not the true spiritual Israel. And I'm just going to keep saying that until we finally start getting a handle on that. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. Turn over to what Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, because Paul is going to show us in Galatians chapter 3, the sixth verse, page 1425 and page 1625, that only those who walk by faith, only those who walk by faith are the true sons, the true sons of Abraham. That's what Paul has pointed out in this third chapter of Galatians. Sometimes people say that Galatians is a shorter version of Romans. It really follows. He's really saying the same thing in, in, in Galatians. And he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, he says, be sure, be certain that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who are of faith. If you are not of faith, you are not a son or a daughter of Abraham. It's just those who have been justified by faith. These are the sons of Abraham. And so we could add, no one is the son of Abraham who is not justified by faith. In verse 8 he says, 
the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Gentiles, everybody who's not a Jew. Sometimes it's translated the Greeks. Those who are not Jews. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Literally, those who are of faith are blessed with the believer Abraham, the believing Abraham. And so the Apostle Paul distinguishes between the natural seed and the spiritual seed of Abraham. So Paul knew that the word of God had not failed, even though most of Israel had not believed in Jesus Christ. And this is true because God's promises were clearly never intended for all who could boast that they were of racial descent from Abraham. And then Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 goes on to say, If you belong to Christ, okay, I'd, I'd have you raise your hand here, but you know who you are. <laughs> if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Descended, deceit. All of you are Abraham's seed. You're a descendant of Abraham. You can say, Abraham is my father. He's the father of faith if you belong to Christ. And you are heirs according to the, the promise. And so will God keep his promise with Israel? Of course he will. But his promise to Israel is not fleshly. Not of the flesh, not at all. His promise to Israel has always been the spiritual Israel. And the fact that the whole nation rejects doesn't mean that God has changed his promise. There's a lot of times in history, in Israel's history, when the nation on the widest margin, where most of the people in Israel rejected the Lord God. All you got to do is read uh, the book of First and Second Kings and the time of Elijah, for example, with Ahab and Jezebel and you know, Jezebel, she moves into the palace with Ahab and she brings 450 prophets of the Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah. You imagine 850 prophets, false prophets, move into the palace with, 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 with Ahab and, and with Jezebel. And, you know, one of the kings of Israel, I believe it was Jeroboam, had already established uh, two temples pagan temples in the northern part Israel because he didn't want uh, the people going down to Jerusalem to worship. That wouldn't be right. And so he places a, a, an idol of Baal in each one of the temples and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt and this is where you can go to worship. Does that sound familiar? Just like when they came, when they came out of Egypt. And of course, Elijah, he reaches a point where he gets depressed even after Mount Carmel and God rains down fire upon the, the altar of God, and he slays, he kills the 400 prophets of Baal in the valley down below, and Jezebel says, word, you're dead meat. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And he takes off and runs, and he runs for several days, and then God refreshes him with food, and he runs for some more days. And then he's finally had enough, and, uh, and Elijah just sits down and says, take my life because I'm the only one left. And God says, oh, no. He says, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The remnant. These were the sons of Abraham. 
This was the true spiritual seed. And so it's always been a remnant theology, we call it. It's always been a remnant who have been faithful to God. And God keeps his covenant promises with the ones who believed. He always has and he always will. Back to verse 8 of Romans chapter 9. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants or regarded as the seed of Abraham. And God, or Paul goes on to show that it was through Isaac, our first example, the promised son, and not through the other sons of Abraham that God keeps his, his promise. And so he says in verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. Remember, Sarah and Abraham, they were elderly. Physically, it was said they couldn't have children. They couldn't think they could have children. And God had promised that they're going to have a son, a son of promise. And it just wasn't happening quick enough for them. We're getting older. This is not working. And so Abraham took Sarah's maidservant Hagar and had a son by her named Ishmael. As, as one commentator put it, and I like the way he worded it, but uh, it's kind of, uh, what's the word here? Intellectual sounding. He said, this looked very much like a human expedient adopted in an attempt to bring about the desired result when the divine promise did not look like it was being fulfilled. I think we can follow that. Sarah was getting older. God didn't seem to be coming through with his promise, and so Abraham and Sarah decided to do it themselves. And Paul aptly describes this as being of the flesh. Of the flesh. Even today, when we do something outside of the Spirit of God, and we do it in our own power and own strength, it's what? It's of the flesh. Way back then, that's what they were doing. In fact, Abraham had several sons. Now, the point here is this, and it's obvious that God chooses some of the sons of Abraham to blessing, but not all of them. <clears throat> and it's obvious from the very start that he rejected Ishmael. There, there were particular blessings upon Ishmael, but God only promised to bless the line through Isaac. And I don't know if you remember, but Abraham had another wife by the name of Keturah. Anybody remember Keturah? She had a couple more sons by Abraham. And they too were rejected. So just being a child of Abraham doesn't put you in the place of blessing. And that's verified, Paul says here, by the very illustration of the case of Isaac. The chosen nation was to come through the loins of Isaac. And so Paul's argument is very simple. Ishmael and Isaac demonstrate that God never intended all those naturally descending from Abraham to receive covenant blessing. The point is, God is selective, or better yet, God is elective. It's his choice. And the second example that Paul uses is that God's chosen plan is through Jacob. Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by the one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of the works, that is, not because anything that Esau and Jacob had done, not because of their works, but because of him who calls. 
It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As you can imagine, we're going to have to work up to verse 13 to see what, what that's talking about. But the key phrase is, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, not because of anything Esau or Jacob had done, but because of him who calls, because of God who calls. God chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. And like Ishmael and Isaac, God is, dis, is dis, uh, demonstrating here that God never attended for all those naturally descending from Abraham to receive covenant blessing. It's all according to God's purpose, God's choice. So he says in verse 10, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Not only this, not only the illustration of Abraham and Sarah, but the illustration of Isaac and Rebekah. Not only did Sarah receive, along with Abraham's promise of son, so did Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Remember that beautiful story in Genesis chapter 25? We studied this in the adult Sunday school class not that long ago. Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel. From Padam Aram, chosen as a wife, as a bride for Isaac. You might remember that story where the servant was, was sent to find a bride for Isaac. So Isaac wouldn't take a bride among the Canaanite women of the land. And, and so she was to be the bride and she came back and she was the bride. And according to Genesis chapter 25, she gave birth. You remember she gave birth to twins. Their names were Jacob and Esau. And Esau was born first, and Jacob was born grasping the heel of his older brother. Even though they're twins, Esau was older than, than Jacob. And from those two, God chose one, one of the two, through whom would come the line of promise. And that one was whom? Jacob. Jacob. And God is going to name Jacob Israel. Israel, the father of many. God's unconditional election finds his, its greatest expression because God's choice was not what the world's choice would be, not what the natural choice, not what the normal choice would be. Esau was born first. He should have been the choice. In fact, they have a fancy name for that. It's called primogenitor, which means you have primacy because you were born, generated first. And, and even in the Bible, it says that meant a double blessing. It meant double respect based on being born first. But God chose Jacob, the second born, and it shows that God is selective. He not only is selective, but sometimes he chooses what doesn't seem to be the way that you or I would choose. But God has that sovereign right. And here again, Paul is saying, you see, not all the natural children are the children of promise. They weren't in the case of Abraham, and they weren't in the case of Isaac. So when Rebekah had conceived twin boys by their father Isaac, God said in verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. This was against the normal course of life, but that was God's choice. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 25, you find a lot of interesting things about these two men, Jacob and Esau. The elder son, the firstborn of the twins, was Esau. Esau, even his name, means red. 
Esau was a hairy red man, it says. He was that macho outdoor hunter type. He was his father's favorite and all of that. He would have been the one that the father, Isaac, would have chosen naturally, and that's the way it's supposed to be. He should have had the special blessing. He should have had the double inheritance. First Chronicles 5.1 promised the double inheritance to him. He should have had the double respect. Second Chronicles 23.1 promises that. He was a wild man. He was a man of the desert, and as he grew and developed, he definitely was not concerned with the things of God. He didn't care anything about God or the things of God. In fact, he married one of the Canaanite women. And then he married another Canaanite woman. And it brought nothing but grief to his parents. He was a wild son of the desert. He was indifferent to the things of God. He married pagan forbidden wives out of the Canaanites. And then to make matters worse, he married his cousin. His cousin was Ishmael's daughter. Genesis 28 tells us about that. Esau is pagan. He's incestuous, and to make things worse, he didn't care about his birthright. He sold it for a bowl of red stew. It didn't even mean anything to him to be the firstborn, so he sold it as for a meal. He disdained his birthright. It was useless to him. It was meaningless to him. He had no thought for things like that. He was indifferent to the things of God. He was indifferent to the covenant. He was indifferent to being the child of promise and all of that meant nothing to him. He's mentioned in an interesting place. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it talks about Esau. Page 1470 in the smaller Bible, 1691 in the larger. And this is an interesting context to be talking about Esau. Hebrews 12, 16. Because right before that, it says in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And then the writer of the Hebrews gives us a caution. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. When bitterness springs up even in uh, the people of God, even among the church, it causes so much trouble that everybody's defiled by it. Everybody's dirtied by, by bitterness. If you want a good definition of bitterness, bitterness is unforgiveness over time. When we fail to forgive over time, we become very bitter people. In fact, one of the Greek words uh, translated forgiveness is aphiomi, which means to release, to send away. When we refuse to release people through forgiveness by what they have done to us, we get bitter and bitter and bitter and more and more bitter. And if you want a good example of that, the writer of the Hebrew says, it's Esau. It's Esau. Verse 16, that there be no immoral or godly person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau was a fornicator. He was a profane person who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And then verse 17 adds, For you know that even afterwards, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he wanted the blessing. He says, it should be mine. I want that. I want that. It says he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance 
though he sought for it with tears. This is just astounding what God says here about bitterness. The bitter person, like Esau, was so corrupt and so evil, so profane, that even when he intellectually wanted to repent, he couldn't find a place for repentance. That's what bitterness does. He couldn't even bring himself to repent because he was so evil and so contaminated by his own bitterness. He was the one who was born first, yet he was not chosen by God, and his life confirmed that, didn't it? that he wasn't chosen by God. You see, when God chooses, that's only part of it. God rejected Esau in the line of promise, and what? Esau also rejected God. God rejected Esau, and Esau also rejected God. You can be sure, and so there's a, there's a wonderful thing in, in all of this horribleness that's going on here. There's a divine mystery, but there's something that gives us strength and faith and encouragement. You can be sure that God only rejects those who reject him. Did you get that? God only rejects those who reject him, and God only chooses those who choose him. That's the divine mystery. How does that work? I have no idea. And by the look on your faces, you don't have any idea either. (laughs) God only rejects those who reject him, and God only chose me because I chose him. I don't know how all that works. God does, and we praise him for that. Then verse 12 of Romans chapter 8 helps us understand something that God says in verse 13 which is a direct quote of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 12. In verse 13 of Romans chapter 9, God says, Just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Isn't that a little strong? That, that's shocking. That, that God who is love would hate, hate anyone. So let's go back to verse 12 of Romans chapter 9. And here... God quotes, uh, he, he quotes scripture from Genesis 25. It was said to her, said to uh, Esau's mother, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Now there's no indication, there's nothing in scripture. In fact, it's just the opposite. While Jacob and Esau were alive, that Esau ever served Jacob. The man Esau never served the man Jacob. But God had told Rebekah that there were two nations in her womb. Two nations. They're not just two twins. They are two nations. And that's the essence of what is being said here. Two nations. Edom was the nation that came from Esau. And Edom was put in servitude. We know this historically and biblically. The nation Edom served the nation that came from Jacob, that came from from Israel. We won't go into it, but you can read the whole book of the prophet Obadiah. If you want to read something late at night, you go, gee, I haven't read that for a while. Go to the prophet Obadiah because Obadiah is just one prophecy after another of God's judgment against the nation of Edom. The Edomites were pagan. They were idolatrous, anti-Israelites. And verse 10 of Obadiah chapter 1 says to the Edomites, 
Because of the violence of your brother Jacob, or better, because of Edomites, your violence to your brother Israel, the nation, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Edom was made a vassal in servitude to Israel by the judgment of God. So Israel coming from the loins of Jacob was the chosen nation. Edom from the loins of Esau, the object of God's wrath. And that's what it's saying here again. God is selective. God chooses two sons born of Isaac. And Isaac was the child of promise. But even again, God chose. God chose and Jacob was God's choice. So what about verse 13 of Romans chapter 9? Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hated. Now, commentators like to say things like, and this might be one of the footnotes in your own study Bible, in comparison to God's love for Jacob, God's rejection of Esau seemed like hate. Now, that might be very well, but I think we need to put the national context back into it. Two nations in the womb. There was Israel and the Edomites, as it were. Two nations where God rejects those who rejects him and God chooses those who, who choose him. And the bottom line is that God's, the Bible says there's a lot of things that God hates. And it never says that he hates an individual person. It's always a thing. It's always an entity. It's always something else. And we need to let God hate what he hates. God hates he hates evil. He hates wickedness. He hates idolatry. And he hated what he saw in Esau. In fact, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 says there are seven things that God hates. I like the way Solomon writes it. There are six things that God hates. No, there are seven. So I don't know if he thought of another one or just being poetic there. God hates haughty eyes. God hates a lying tongue. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates feet that run rapidly to evil. God hates a false witness who utters lies. And God hates the one who spreads strife among brothers. That might be the only place where it's personalized in all of Scripture. God hates the one who spreads strife among brothers. It says at the end of verse 4 of Malachi chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. It says that against Edom, the Lord has indignation forever. Against Edom, the Lord has indignation forever. And then Malachi goes on to say that this magnifies the Lord. The fact that God hates Edom forever and his indignation against them forever, this magnifies the Lord. And we go, How, isn't that kind of strange or, or wrong or something? So let me put it this way. Would we think it's strange that God would hate nations that persecute and kill Christians? Would we think it's strange that God would hate religions that if you believe their stuff, it damns people to hell for all eternity? Would we think it's strange that God hates terrorist groups and countries that support terrorists? See what that does to Romans here? Just as it is written, we could say, Israel I love, but Edom, Edom I hated. Because we would want our God 
to hate these other things, wouldn't we? And he does. But he has chosen us. And we can fully trust that God's purpose, according to his choice, will stand. It will remain. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And with that, we'll have to pick it up the next question next time. What shall we say then, that there is no injustice with God? Is there injustice with God? (laughs) May it never be. Shall we pray? Father, as we come before you now after working through what can be a very difficult passage of Scripture, Lord, and raises all kinds of questions in our own minds as we start to put this together. But Father, I, I thank you that you have given us your word and that you have given us chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans, Father, that are going to explain these matters to us. And that it all comes back to your sovereignty, who you are, and your choice for us, Lord. And your choice, as it were, to to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Because the Bible says even that uh, our Savior Jesus was chosen. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world that he would be the Son of God who would come into this world, Lord, in order that you might keep all of your promises to us all of your promises and we thank you for this in our Savior's name Amen